All right, let's take our Bible and let's uh, to uh, Romans chapter 12 again, and you should have received an outline in your uh, bulletin. There's also an insert concerning the last set of spiritual gifts that we'll be looking at uh, this morning together. Uh, how many of you uh, were, well, I'm going to date some of you, how many of you were Seinfeld fans? Any Seinfeld people here? Yeah. Just uh, keep your hand up. These are the old people that are here with us this morning. No, so Seinfeld was an extremely popular sitcom that lasted for nine seasons from like 1989 through 94. It was kind of eclipsed by Friends. Any Friends? Uh, no? I got one, two, three. All right, so yeah, so Friends went for ten seasons, and it was um, actually in 94 and then went through uh, 2004. Now, one of the things about um, Seinfeld is uh, it really didn't have a lot of plot. So the writers were really good, the characters were good, um, but they just, I mean, they were like crazy characters. But uh, if you ever watched a, an episode of Seinfeld, it was just like... Um, the characters just kind of meandered from situation to situation. There was really no apparent purpose in their lives or apparent plot to that particular show. In fact, uh, once the show concluded, uh, they did a, you know, kind of an analysis of those who used to watch Seinfeld, and they discovered why people so loved the program, because they felt like their lives aligned with the characters in Seinfeld, Who's just your life just kind of feels aimless. It's just kind of meandering around. It really has no sense of purpose. Uh, it just you know you just kind of do your thing and you know day in and day out. And so people love the show. If that says anything about our mental state of being. <laughs> so there are a lot of people who live their lives in this world who have no real sense of purpose. Like you're trying to figure out what it is you're supposed to be doing, or you're trying to figure out what it is that God wants you to do, and, and uh, we're talking about finding and discovering your unique purpose. Why did God design you the way he designed you? Why did he give you certain talents and abilities and giftedness and personalities and the experiences that you've had in life? Because God says for those who love God and are called according to his purposes, that God takes all, and all things can be good things, can be bad things, can be ugly things. And so God uses everything in our lives. Nothing is wasted because he has a unique and divine purpose for us that he wants us to fulfill. So Paul put it this way in Ephesians 2.10, that we are created in Christ to do good works, the works, works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So what are those works? What is it that God wants to do? And one of the things we're trying to focus in on is your unique shape, okay? So um, if you did not pick up, and I, I know there's ministry profiles. You got Some of you have received yours in the bulletin a few weeks ago. Some of you picked some up last week. We ran out. There's some more out on the table. You're really going to need this ministry profile for next week because we're going to complete this. But we're, we're anchoring in on spiritual gifts at this point. So your shape is your spiritual giftedness, your heart, your heart's what you're passionate about, it's what really motivates you in life, 
Um, it can be, you can be passionate about a group of people, you can be passionate about a cause or a particular ministry, and then you have abilities that you were born with. God just gave you some, some incredible abilities, and most people think, well, I don't really think I have very many, many abilities, but next week we're going to help you understand you've got far more God-given abilities than you give yourself credit for. You've got a personality that is a, a personality uh, distinction. You know, everybody has a little bit of the four types of personalities that, you know, psychologists kind of go by. But there's probably one dominant personality type which helps you understand what God has created you to be so you understand what he's created you to do. And then there are experiences. You have painful experiences. You have mountaintop experiences. You have educational experiences. You have all kinds of experience, ministry experiences in life all make your unique shape so that rather than feeling like our lives are like a hamster in a wheel inside of a cage and we're getting nowhere, we begin to understand what God's purpose, his unique divine purpose is for each of our lives so we understand more clearly how it is that God wants us to serve him. So rather than just meandering through life from situation to situation without any apparent purpose or order to our lives, God says, no, I, I created you for something far beyond that. He, his calling upon your life is customizing your life purpose. God has a calling on every single person's life. Now, oftentimes when we hear the word calling, we think, well, uh, okay, you're a pastor, so God called you into the pastor. Well, yeah, that's true, but, but God has placed a calling on all of our lives. We have different roles. We have different responsibilities. But all of us have a unique calling, and once you understand what that is, it is the key to experiencing spiritual growth. In fact, you can go from zero to 60 in a short period of time when you understand what the calling is and you begin implementing that calling. God has a unique calling on your life, and he wants you to live your life and be the best that he's created you to be so that you will experience what Jesus called the abundant life, right? Jesus said in John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy, but God has come that we might have life and have it abundantly. I'm just here to say that you will have a hard time experiencing God's abundant life apart from living out the calling he has placed upon your life. And so this is what we're spending uh, several weeks on trying to help you understand exactly what that is. God has called you within the body of Christ to serve in a ministry. He's called us outside the body of Christ to serve in a mission, right? We all have a mission field that we reside in, whether we go to school or work or in neighborhoods or wherever it might be. So Jesus himself gave us our marching orders, right? He says, I want all of you to go and make disciples. Well, what does it mean to make a disciple? Well, I'm going to help people understand who Christ is. What better time of the year than at Christmas? Where people are wondering, well, why do we really celebrate the Christmas holiday? In fact, most of society is trying to cut Jesus out of the holiday, right? They're trying to seclude him just to the churches. Nowhere in the public eye are we to be displaying manger scenes and all of those kinds of things. And this has been going on for years. It's nothing new. Now we can't say Merry Christmas. You have to say Happy Holidays and so on and so forth. Well, 
God has given us a hope, right, within us through Christ. And Peter says, let's all of us be ready and prepared to give a reason for the hope that resides inside of us. And as I've said many times, he who brings hope to the table brings the greatest amount of influence. Because there's not many people living in our world today outside of Christ who have much hope. In fact, things are deteriorating pretty rapidly in society and across our world. And so we bring something unique to the table. So I want to help people to, grow, to connect with Christ. And so when I run across people who have no relationship with Jesus, I just start asking them questions. You know, and, and as you're asking questions, people begin sharing their story. And it gives you a point of entrance into their thought process and into their lives that helps you help them explore who Jesus is and why he is so important to your life and why he can be important to their life. And so when a person connects with Christ through salvation, then we got to help them grow up, right? We, we explore and then we connect with Christ and then we have to grow. We grow in that relationship. We grow in our walk with God. And ultimately, Jesus says, as we're growing, then we are going. As you go, make disciples. We are growing and going and then we are investing our lives into the lives of other people. And it is an investment, and it's an investment of time. It is an investment of your talents and abilities, your shape. It is an investment of your money, right? So all three of these avenues are part of why God has called us into his kingdom. And as we journey with Jesus, we are expressing our unique shape to the world around us. And we are advancing the kingdom. Life is more than just receiving a paycheck. Life is more than just acquiring things in, in the world. Those are wonderful. I mean, we all work for a paycheck. We, we, you know, we buy houses. We buy cars. We have families. We get married. We have children. And all those wonderful things. But that's not the ultimate thing that God has called us to. It is a part of it, but it's not the whole purpose. And so if we're not careful, we will never engage in what God has truly called us to do, because Satan, your, your tempter, will always tempt you to put something else in his place. Right, this is something we all struggle with. What is the most precious commodity that you have? Time, right? Everybody is out of time. Everybody's schedules are full to the max. Can't add one more thing to my calendar, one more thing to my schedule. Uh, I love there's a TV commercial uh, where two cowboys, you know, they're, they're, they're in a western town, and they're going to, they're on the standoff for a gunfight, and they're trying to figure out when they can do this, and they both pull out their calendars, and, well, how about Tuesday? Well, no, it can't be Tuesday. How about next week? And so it goes back and forth. They can't figure out when they're going to have their, their gunfight because their calendars are so, so full. Uh, I said to my pastor friends, this is what it is like two pastors trying to get together for lunch. Well, can you do that? No, can you do it? And so all of us have schedules that are jam-packed with a lot of wonderful things. The problem is, are we packing them with what is the most important thing? Now, Jesus told a story about a guy who spent his entire life just accumulating more and more stuff, making more money, more money, bigger, building bigger barns and bigger barns and bigger barns. And then Jesus says, at the end of this man's life, he says, that night his life came to an end. And when Jesus gave a description, when he gave the eulogy of the man's funeral, Jesus said, that man was a fool. 
because that is not what life is about. Now, we all need money, make money, but we are all called into ministry, into the kingdom of God, and to serve him. So we're talking about finding my, bo- my place in the body of Christ, and we're using uh, Romans chapter 12 as our anchor. I'm just going to highlight a couple things um, as we go through. Number one is you've got to dedicate your body. So he says, he starts right out of the gate in verse 1 of chapter, therefore, brothers, I urge you to view, in view of God's mercy, in view of all that God has done for us. So your greatest Christmas gift that you ever received was the gift of Jesus. To offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, this is your spiritual act of worship. So what does it mean to dedicate my body? It is to dedicate everything that I am to the word and to the will of God. Right, so I'm putting it all on the line. It is, it, if you would just write down the words complete surrender, that's what it is. To dedicate my body is absolute complete surrender. The reason why you and I celebrate Christmas every year is because two teenagers, Joseph and Mary, were willing to put their lives on the line in utter complete surrender to the call and to the will of God for their lives. So I, I want to just kind of flesh that out for just a moment. They chose to surrender themselves in complete obedience to the will of God. Do you know that Joseph never spoke a word in the New Testament? There's not one scripture-worthy quote that he ever made. But yet God approached him through an angel and says, listen, uh, Mary, I want you to take Mary as your wife because she's about to give birth to a son and you're going to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And so Joseph marries Mary or, and takes her to Bethlehem. And there it was that Joseph had to, to go to Bethlehem because this is his, his place where he came to register and Mary gives birth. Now, we love to idealize that first Christmas night, right? How it was just so wonderful, and the snow's coming down, and the angels are singing, and the animals are cooing. Can you imagine being Mary in this situation? I mean, the, uh, you're in a stable, okay? There's no nutmeg, uh, uh, you know, cinnamon smells, uh, anything like that. It's the stench of animals. It is a baby being laid in a manger. It is the rough hands of a carpenter who is the only midwife that she has, and we all know how well men do with those kinds of things. I mean, it was just like, it was not a a wonderful scenario uh, that she found herself in, but yet Joseph, he was was willing to to set aside his reputation and to follow the will of God, and then once Jesus is born and uh, a couple of years have passed and the wise men come, and now Herod finds out through the wise men that a rival king has been born and therefore uh, a Joseph is warned again by an angel to flee to Egypt and they have to 
flee to Egypt, and they're, they're there till Herod dies, and then they come back and move up into Nazareth. And Nazareth was, you know, was not a, it was in Galilee, and Galilee was like the low man on the totem pole, or the low man on the rung of the ladder. Uh, it was not, you know, favorable, and it was a, a kind of a hick city is what we would say, and it was a small city, a small town, and you can imagine uh, the rumors that went around and flew around about Joseph and about Mary in the birth of this what they considered an illegitimate child. Yet Joseph was willing to surrender everything. And think about Mary's situation. When an angel comes to her and says, you are about to be endowed by a, with a child through the Holy Spirit, and he is going to be the Messiah. And her response was, may it be I am the Lord's servant, may it be as you have said. Now, Mary's not saying, you know, it's all clear now, and I'm really excited to be a part of this. She didn't understand. She wasn't sure about how all this was going to unfold and unpack itself. But she was saying, it doesn't make sense to me, but I will pursue it. I will follow it regardless of my fears, regardless of my reservations. My point is simply this. Joseph and Mary dedicated their bodies as a living sacrifice to their heavenly father because they were willing to surrender themselves completely and totally to the word and to the will of God at that moment in time in their life. And aren't we glad they did? The bottom line is this. A surrendered life is a courageous life. There is risk involved. We want God to lay it all out for us and, you know, make the, make the road smooth and knock down all the hills so it's just kind of like, you know, we're kumbayaing along with the Lord and no setbacks and no valleys and, you know, it's just all going to work out perfectly. It did not for them. They had no idea what they were getting themselves into when they said yes to the angel who was speaking to them. And that brings us to the elimination of competing distractions. And Paul says, don't conform ourselves to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. In other words, if we are going to engage in, if we are going to be a part of the ministry God has called us to, it takes time. That means I have to make time in my schedule. I have to eliminate something so that I can be engaged in what it is that God wants to do. A survey from Microsoft was found out that 77% of young adults answered yes to this question. When nothing is occupying my attention, the first thing I do is reach for my phone. We love our phones, right? Like if you leave your phone somewhere, it's like full-blown panic. Where's my phone? Where's my phone? And we, we love our phone. We occupy our time. If there is a hint of boredom in our lives, we grab our smartphone and we check our news feeds and our emails and our social media and we scroll and we are scrolling through, you know, all kinds of stories and, you know, there's hurtful stories, painful stories, joyful things, celebrations. And over time, what happens is our minds cannot process that much information coming at us that quickly, and so we become numb to what it is we're scrolling through. 
So if I scroll through some tragic thing, it's just like, boom, I'm, I'm through it, and therefore it never has opportunity to large, lodge into my mind and thus filter its way down into my heart, resulting of something happening with my hands. It's just another story. Sometimes we can try zoom through life. Now we're no longer paying attention to what's going on around us. We're no longer... Uh, paying attention to the people that God brings across our pathway because he wants us to do something about their situation. Or maybe they just need encouragement. Maybe they just need somebody to listen to them. But it's taking the time to do that. Because now I'm thinking, well, uh, but I got so much to get done today. I got, I, got, I got so many things to do. And on we go. One of the patterns you find in the life of Jesus, Jesus didn't run through the streets of whatever city he was in. He walked and he paid attention and he saw people and he saw needs and he stopped and he addressed those needs. And the key to Jesus' life and power was not found in just meeting people's needs. The key to Jesus' life and power was found in his times of solitude with his heavenly Father. You read all through the Gospels, and Jesus withdrew, and Jesus withdrew, and Jesus withdrew. One of the things we don't do is spend time in solitude, in time of prayer, in time of listening to what the Father wants to instill in us. To open up and attune our ears to the Spirit's voice so that as we are rushing through our day, I mean, if, if our ears are so filled with so much noise, we don't even hear when the Spirit prompts us, hey, stop. I've got a divine appointment for you right here. It was the key to, to, um, to his life and to his, his ministry rather than being a Filled with anxiety and exhaustion, he, he, he met needs. He, he paid attention. He couldn't meet all the needs, but he met the needs that he could meet. And he met the needs, watch this, that the Father assigned to him. What did Jesus say? I only do what the Father tells me to do. I only say what he tells me to say. Where did he get those instructions in his time of solitude? Listening to the Father. Have you ever just sat and listened to God? Not talking, not spewing your prayer list to Him, but you just take time to sit and say, you know what, Father, I'm going to sit with your word and I'm just going to listen and whatever you tell me, I'm just going to write it down. That will do more for you in unloading and unpacking anxiety and stress and the hurriness of your life than anything else. This, this past week, I had opportunity to spend with, through our North American Mission Board called Sin Network, um, we did assessments on church planters and their wives this week for two days, 12-hour uh, days, Tuesday and Wednesday, I was a part of that assessment team. And so these couples come, and they spend two days with us, and they're assessed in eight different areas of their life, and my responsibility was to assess their spiritual and mental health. 
So, uh, you know, there's a lot of questions. They have to go through interviews, 50-minute interviews. They have to go through a lot of different things throughout the course of the day. Uh, but my responsibility is to do that 50-minute interview. I have to write an assessment report that goes into the record. And so basically at the end of the two days, uh, all the assessment teams come together, and we decide if we're going to give this couple a green light, like they're a go to plant, and the North American Mission Board is going to help fund them and give them you know, insurance, or is it going to be a yellow, like, well, you need to, there, there's some things you probably need to take care of before we give you the green light, and those couple who, who get red lights and just says, well, that's probably really not what God's calling you to do, or at least you need to step away and, and reassess and take some time and trying to figure it out. So it's a, it's a huge responsibility. This is the first year I've done it. But one of the things that interested me in, in the fact that these are couples who are have a passion for God. God's gifted them in incredible ways. Uh, they have a heart for the lost, and they're planting churches, but not one single couple had times of solitude or a Sabbath. When I asked them, do you, do you practice a Sabbath? Which means, do you get away from what it is you do, and you just... Sabbath, you spend some time with the Lord, you spend time with your family, and you just like really build some deep roots, not one single couple. They just laughed at me like, <laughs> how are we going to add that into our schedule? To which I responded, and that's the problem. Now, we have to make recommendations for these couples, uh, some recommendations, and so I always... Um, recommended a particular book by John uh, Mark Comer, and it is a book that's on how you eliminate hurriedness in life. It's all about solitude. It's about Sabbathing. It's about getting in touch with God. If you're going to go out on the field and you're going to serve God, and by the way, these couples, with the exception of one, was serving in the state of Ohio, will be serving in the state of Ohio, is that you need to have God's input constantly in your life. That is what helps you stay healthy mentally and emotionally. All right, number three, you know, we evaluate our strengths, and, and we've talked about that and co cooperating with other believers. Let's get down to the, the giftedness. Um, we're going to talk about manifestation gifts today. We've talked about the motivational gifts, ministry gifts, manifestation gifts. Uh, these are gifts of the Holy Spirit, which all of them are, uh, but these um, particular gifts uh, sometimes become controversial in Christian circles, so I want to try to unpack some things. There are those who believe that these gifts ceased uh, to operate after the writing of the New Testament, and the, uh, the apostles died out, and those are called a, a cessationist. And it's based, they really base that up on, uh, if you want to go to 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 13 for a minute, because chapters 12 and 14 really uh, assess a lot of these manifestation gifts. But here's what they base this on about cessationism. It says in um, verse 8 of chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put those childish things away. So there's the key word there is when perfection comes. When does perfection come? 
Perfection comes for us when we leave this world and we enter into heaven, in, into the presence of God, right? So remember, salvation's in three tenses. I have been saved. I've been justified before God. I am being saved. God is transforming our lives into the likeness of Jesus. I will be saved. I will enter into my perfected glorification with Christ, all right? So uh, when does perfection come on planet Earth? Perfection comes on planet Earth when Jesus comes back. He establishes his millennial kingdom, and after that, there's several things that go on. And then God destroys the present heavens and earth uh, and renews them and, uh, re, you know, and re, um, re, <laughs> recreates. And so Jerusalem comes and is the capital city of earth. And so the planet is now in its perfected state of being, and you and I are in our perfected state of being. I believe that's what Paul is referring to, is when God's perfection comes, of course these gifts are not going to be needed, because in your perfected state of being, for example, you will have all the knowledge that you need to have. Right? So, but I think these gifts very much play a role in our day and time, so let's Let's hit these gifts, and uh, hope you have the insert. I've given you uh, some descriptions. The gift of knowledge, the ability to discover, analyze, systemize truth for the benefit of others. With this gift, one speaks with understanding and penetration, but the word of knowledge can also involve supernatural perception and discernment for the purpose of ministering to others. You know things that you could not know other than by divine in, in uh intuition or revelation. Now, when we say word of knowledge in this context, that means that God gives you, he downloads through the Holy Spirit a word inside of you about someone or a situation. I'll give you an example. This is out of Acts chapter 5. You'll recall there's a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. They sold some property, and then they brought it to the apostles, and Peter's there in the doorway, and they say, well, here's our gift. We're giving you everything. Well, they were lying. <laughs> and Peter knew they were lying. How did Peter know they were lying? Because they hadn't told anybody about what their, their scheme was, what they were going to be doing. And Peter says, why are you lying to the Holy Spirit? You remember what, what the result of that was? Well, Ananias came first. He died. Boom. God took him out. Then his wife came later on, gave the same scenario, and Peter said the same thing. Why are you lying to the Holy Spirit, we've already carried out your husband, and you're going out the same way. Aren't you glad God doesn't treat us that way over giving now, right? That's a good place for an amen. Uh, so how, would, how did Peter know those things? He knew it because God downloaded a word of knowledge. And so sometimes God does this for his kingdom purposes. Uh, some of you have this gift, and I know some of you have this gift, and God just shows you things that you would have no way of knowing had God not shown you. Well, why would God do that? Not so that you can go up to somebody and say, God told me to tell you, fear those people, okay? They, they, they utilize the giftedness because God's probably going to, going to have you be a part of the answer to what it is they're facing. Or it might be you are the one who's going to provide the encouragement for them to keep going to keep going. And it might be God, yes, gives you a word of knowledge about what it is they need to do because it might be surrounding a decision they need to make 
And they've been praying and praying and praying, and they're just not sure which way to go. And God just uses you as a word of affirmation as to what decision they should make. And so I know uh, several people with this gift, and it's an incredible gift, but it is an incredible responsibility. Because if you're going to give somebody a word of knowledge, you better know you've heard from God, right? And you do it in a way that is loving. Listen, God always puts these gifts in the context of love. 1 Corinthians 12, you have spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 14, spiritual gifts. What's in between? The love chapter, right? We do it out of love, not, not out of spite or out of, oh, I'm superior to you. You're just helping somebody. Even in Romans chapter 12, when he listed the motivational gifts, he goes into what? Immediately, Paul goes into love. Here's how we, here's how we love people utilizing these gifts. So a person with this gift, um, they devote a lot of time to reading Scripture. They love to share biblical insight, enjoy helping others increase their understanding of God's Word, and take delight in answering difficult questions and helping people um, with whatever message that God lays upon their heart that they need to help them with. The second one is faith, the gift of faith. Now, remember, with many of these gifts, we're all supposed to exercise faith. That's not the same as the gift of faith. We're all supposed to share our faith, but it's not the same if you have the gift of evangelism, right? So faith is something we all need, but people with the gift of faith have the ability to have a vision for what God wants to be done and to believe confidently that it will be accomplished in spite of circumstances and appearances to the contrary. In other words, a person with the gift of faith if they start out in something and it's not working out, their faith doesn't get rattled. It's not like, oh, no, you know, if God doesn't come through, the world's falling apart. Uh, that's, those of us who don't have the gift of faith, we tend to respond that way. These folks, man, they are just like steadfast. No, God gave me the vision. God gave me the word. This is what he's going to do. I don't care what it looks like, what roadblocks are out there. I'm telling you, God's going to do this thing. We need to keep moving forward when everybody else wants to pull back. The gift of faith transforms vision into reality by stepping out in faith in order to see God's purposes accomplished, trusting him to handle any and all obstacles along the way. So people with the gift of faith welcome risk for God. They welcome being risky. Uh, they're energized by variables. In other words, they typically don't like routine kind of ministries because it's not challenging enough. There's not enough risk involved, man. They want the things that you really got to step out, like, you know, crawl out on the branch and saw the tree off behind you, right? So this is just what they do. For example, these church planters, when you're planting a church, you start off by developing a core group of people, and you want to get that core birth weight up to about 40 to 50 people. And these are what I call your scaffold people. They're going to help you get that church started. Why? Because they love the risk. They, they love the adrenaline. They, they love the challenge. But what happens after the church grows up and, it, you know, and then it just becomes, you know, it gets to maybe 80, 90, 100 people and now all of a sudden there's not much, nearly as much risk involved and you're not trying to raise money. And you, you know, a lot of things change. They tend to leave the church. They're going to find another planter, somebody they can attach because this is just how God has wired them. Now some will stay, but by and large, Many of them will leave. And we always try to prepare the planter like, hey, don't take it personally. This is just the way God's wired them. 
All right, so um, they have great confidence in their ventures and are often characterized with a very passionate prayer life. Because if you're going to walk in riskiness, you're going to keep your ears attuned to the Father. Here's another one, healing. The ability to serve as a human instrument through whom God cures illnesses and restores health. The possessor of this gift is not the source of, the, of power, but a vessel who can heal only those diseases the Lord chooses to heal. The spiritual gifts should not be confused with the signs and wonders performed by Jesus. How many success stories did Jesus have of healing? Every single one of them, right? I've never known a person with the gift of healing who God used to heal every person that was brought to them. That's why when people misuse this gift and abuse this gift, and there's a lot of misuse and abuse that goes on, People will say, well, let me take you into the hospital, and let's just go room to room, man, lay hands on them, and they're all going to get healed. Probably not. All right, let's move on back up and explain. The spiritual gifts should not be confused with the signs and wonders performed by Jesus and the apostles. It should be, not be discredited because of the abuses of grandstanding faith healers. Listen, God still heals. Um, God has allowed me to pray over people, and I've seen many people healed, of a lot of different things, but not everyone I've ever prayed over receives healing. I received God's miraculous healing, but here God used the medical field to bring that about. So he performed the miraculous, marrying it with the physical or with doctors. So God can heal miraculously, he can heal through doctors, or he can marry the two together, or God can heal mysteriously And mysteriously simply means that the person dies physically, but they've experienced their healing once they've entered into heaven, right? And so that's not what we want for people, but sometimes that's the avenue that God travels, and we want to understand why because we don't understand why. So a person I want you to pray for is our director of missions, Rich Halcom, um, has a grandson who was born with spinal muscular atrophy 2, which means he's been confined to a wheelchair all of his life. He has no ability to hold himself up. He, he can't even hardly hold his head up. And so for him to even cough is, is something extremely difficult. Most children with this disease don't live beyond the age of 11. And so uh, Eli was eight years old. He caught a, a cold or something a couple of weeks ago, went to Children's Hospital Three days later, he died. And so it's been heart-wrenching for his Zach and Nicole, who are his parents, and Rich and Tina, who, who are the grandparents. But here's what they know. He's walking now. He's running now. He ain't got no wheelchair in heaven. And so that is the hope that we have in Christ that we bring to the table. Did they... I mean, is, has it been tremendously painful for them and grieving and they're still grieving? Absolutely. But they also know that one day they'll be with him again and there will be no more sickness and no more disease and no more death. And so people with this gift believe firmly that people can be healed supernaturally. They pray specifically to be used by God to heal others. They fully realize that healing occurs only by God's divine permission. They view medicine as a means that God may choose for healing, and they embrace their gift as from the hand of God and as a specific way to bring him glory. I've shared with you before, 
when I was praying over somebody, a deacon in my church, uh, when I was in Alabama, that God said to me clearly as I was leaving his room, I'm not going to heal him. I'm not, I'm not. And so, you know, God just took me back with that. And his, you know, his wife and his daughter were members of the church. And, and so, you know, I said, we got, we got to change how we're praying. And so, um, long story short, he lasted another eight months. Uh, but when he died, he, he, was, he had the gift of evangelism. I can't tell you how many nurses and doctors he led to the Lord. On the day he died, I was coming back from Memphis, Tennessee, and I stopped uh, on the way before I you know, got home at the hospital. His daughter called me and says, Dad's just passed. I said, great, I'm 10 minutes out. I got there. I walked into his hospital room. And all the nurses and the doctors he led to the Lord were in there standing around the room as the family was leading in prayer. You don't ever see that in a hospital. At least I never have. Before or since. So that's sometimes how God operates. Miracles. The ability to serve as an instrument through whom God accomplishes acts that manifest supernatural power. Miracles bear witness to the presence of God and the truth of his proclaimed word and appears to occur most frequently in association with missionary activity. The gospel message carries its own authority, but God sometimes graciously uses miracles to authenticate and open doors for the proclamation of forgiveness and the life of Christ. Listen, as the world gets darker, God ramps up miracles. Our missionaries on, in the IMB can tell you stories that will raise the hair on the back of your neck about the miracles that God's doing all around the world. I had one missionary tell me about the fact that they came into a village, the village had no, um, you know, no gospel message, no, one had, no missionaries, they come into the village, you know, the witch doctor had his tent right there in the, his hut in the middle of the village, and there's a huge tree out in front of it. This missionary came to our church several years ago and told this story, and uh, they came in there, and they always try to get with, you meet with the tribal leader, because if they can lead him to Christ, he'll lead the whole village to Christ, right? So they met with the tribal leader, and the tribal leader, long story short, said this, if you can pray to your God and down that tree, we'll believe. And they started praying. They prayed through day one, day two, day three, day four. Nothing's happening. The witch doctor's out there. He's making fun of them. He's kind of, you know, prodding them like Elijah did with the prophets of Baal. And, they, you know, day five, day six, but on day seven, all of a sudden, they started hearing a crackling in the tree at the base of it. And within four hours... God brought that tree down. The tribal leader gave his life to Christ. And before two weeks were up, the entire village had given their life to Jesus, including the witch doctor. Those are the kinds of things that God does. And I'm telling you, our IMB missionaries can tell you story after story of those kinds of things. So people with this gift, they recognize that prayer is a supernatural vehicle through which God acts. In the lives of people on earth, they render credit and thank God for, alone for his supernatural works. They fully grasp the fact that miracles occur when God wills them to happen. They see themselves as instruments for God's use, and they pray and look to supernatural results whenever they encounter impossible life situations. The gift of discernment, the ability to discern the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. With this gift, one may distinguish reality versus counterfeits, the divine versus the demonic, 
true versus false teaching, and in some cases, spiritual versus carnal motives. And isn't this gift needed today? Hello. Uh, (laughs) Find it easy to read others and are most often right. They recognize the spiritual source of a message, whether it's from God, Satan, or man. They recognize inconsistencies in others. Easily identify people's true motives and agendas. They perceive when the truth is twisted or communicated with error. People with this gift make great apologists. Let me explain the word apologist. Defenders of the faith, right? These are people who can, you know, debate. The Apostle Paul had the ability to debate with the, the, uh, um, the philosophers of his day. And so these individuals have a unique ability to sit down and they can, man, you know, as people are firing things at them, they can just very calmly say, well, here's this, and here's this, and what about this, and here, and they just know how to align the facts and to discern whether or not this is truthful or not, and so uh, it's incredible to watch someone with this gift, because they, they, um, they're, they're just amazing to listen to and to watch. Um, the gift of tongues, this is probably the most controversial gift, the ability to receive and impart a spiritual message in a language that the recipient never learned, obviously in Acts chapter 1, uh, you know, people heard the the gospel in their own, their own language, for other members of the body be edified. This message must be interpreted either by the recipient or by another person with the gift of interpretation. This gift may also express itself in a prayer language understood not only by God or the one who is given the gift of interpretation at the time. And so as a prayer language, it is a language that you are speaking between you and God that is, just brings you into focus in a very, um, uh, just a very incredible way. I mean, you're just so focused and you're so uh, in tune with, with the Lord. Now, Max Lucado just came out and said, yes, I speak in tongues in my personal, uh, in my personal devotions, which has caused a huge rift, and I don't know why. Well, why is that a bad thing? If somebody is connecting to the Lord through a language that God is giving to them, that they may or may not understand at the time, but oftentimes God enables them to, 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 if not interpret, but to at least see the result of what is going on in that particular moment. And so it's oftentimes put into the atmosphere to release, to release the, the um, miraculous power, healing power of God in a given situation. Now, the gift of interpretation is somebody who can interpret what that person is saying. Now, Paul says, if you're going to use tongues in a, for example, a public um, worship service such as this, that um, only one person should speak at a time, and then somebody needs to give an interpretation, and not more than three people uh, in any given service. Now, oftentimes we see the gift of tongues used in uh, charismatic situations where that's not the case at all. There's just everybody speaking in tongues, and nobody's interpreting, and it's just... And so Paul says, listen, we need to do this in an orderly manner. And he gave some very specific instructions on how to do that. So having said that, uh, some people have that gift of interpreting what it is that God is saying. Again, God couches all of this in love. So in closing, um, I'm going to fill in your blanks because I'm out of time, um, is that here are some ways that Satan can kind of come at you, common traps I call, concerning your giftedness. One is comparison, right? Is that sometimes we tend to compare ourselves to others. We say, but I want that gift because, you know, that gift's so cool and mine's not as cool. 
Or I want that gift because, you know, that's an upfront gift, man. I mean, you know, like upfront, you know, like pastor, he gets to stand on stage every week and he gets to talk to people. And I want that gift. And so we start comparing ourselves with others. And listen, God has given you the gift or gifts, probably, you need to have for the specific thing God has called you to do. Number two is the word projection. In other words, projection is especially common in relationships at work or even at home. For example, if you have the gift of administration, that means you're very orderly. You know, it's very, uh, everything's very orderly, timely, and you can juggle a lot of plates. And if you ask somebody to help you in a project, you have the gift of administration. They don't, then you get real agitated with them. Well, what do you mean you didn't get that done? And what do you, you know, why are you late? I, you know, so a lot of times clashes that happen between people and churches are gift clashing because we project upon others, you ought to be able to do what I do the way I do it. And it's just not true. You know, anyways, rejection, number three. And that's simply the trap of rejection is, it's like, God, I don't want that gift. So we've gone through the gifts, and you may understand. Let's say you have the gift of pastor, and you're like, I don't want to be a pastor of a church. Uh, I'm rejecting that gift. I, I don't want that. I want something else, right? Well, pastoring doesn't mean you have to have the title of a pastor. Pastoring means you just love a group of people, right? And you want to help them and nurture them and teach them and feed them. It can be a small group. It can be a triad of people. It might be one-on-one. That's just your heart. You just love to help people come to faith, you know, just grow in their faith in the Lord and, and just move forward in their walk with God. So it's, you know, again, God has custom made your gifts, and we'll talk about, we'll tie that in with the rest of the ministry profile next week. The last one is deception. Listen, Satan Molt can manipulate you into believing you have certain gifts that God has not given you. For example, um, I had a young man come to me several years ago, and he says, I want to plant a church. Will your church help me fund that? And I said, well, tell me, what, where are you planting? What's your plan? What are you going to do? Uh, and he, he says, well, uh, I'm not really sure where I'm planting, uh, probably somewhere near where I live, and I don't have a place, I don't have a plan, I don't have a vision. I really don't have anything that, any of that together. And I'm thinking, brother, you ain't got the gift of leadership. Uh, John Maxwell once said, if you think you're a leader and ain't nobody following you, you're just going for a walk. You know, it's not, it's not happening. And I just had to politely say to him, I'm sorry, but I just can't get behind this because I don't just, I don't think this is your gift. It's just not you. You do not have the giftings that are pretty much necessary if you're going to be a church planter. Well, several years later, he went through the assessment through the North American Vision Board, and guess what? They told him the same thing. This just isn't for you. This is not you. You, you, don't, you don't have the giftings. You don't have the ability to pull this off. You, it's just not going to fly. And uh, so that's a hard thing to hear, right? And so Satan has deceived him into thinking, I can only do this. But he had some incredible gifts in some other areas. I said, man, if you just apply yourself here, God will use you. Don't get frustrated. So here's the closing truth, and it's simply this. God is more willing to move than we're willing to go. So let me close with this statement. 
Churches, 4,000 churches every year close their doors in the United States. Churches do not close because people are unwilling to come in. Churches close because God's people are unwilling to go out. You can't make disciples just by remaining behind our four walls. It encompasses more than that, right? But it encompasses, let's look at our shape, let's look at how God has knit us together to be the most effective church we can be and reaching our community around us. Let's bow our heads.